Turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel. We're in chapter 24. Sermon number 60, second, uh, uh, second volume, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel. We're in chapter 24, finishing up the book today. Um, number 60, as I said, if you have not uh, seen any of the sermon series or online, you can, you can do that. Um, we are finishing today, and we're going to be jumping into the book of Galatians. Uh, Mike, if you could put that video, uh, that up, uh, Galatians. Uh, Ricky's getting my iPad. Uh, no other gospel is what we're calling it. It's nothing original. A lot of people call it that, so we're just picking up. Um, it's really about no other gospel. If you get the gospel wrong, yeah. If you get the gospel wrong, Paul will tell us in Galatians, there's damnation. Not only will you get the gospel wrong, but if you get the gospel wrong and you tell others a false gospel, damnation for them. So the gospel is very, very important. It's the center of all that we do here. And Galatians is what's called the Magna Carta of the Christian faith or, or the Christian liberty and that we've been freed. We've been received salvation by Christ alone, faith alone, by grace alone, for the glory of God alone. So very, very important. Um, be studying that book and... Let me just get this real quick, um, and, and we're we'll, we'll starting in two weeks, okay? But right now, again, we're in 2 Samuel chapter 24. Let me just get my iPad. I left it in my office. There we go, sound booth, okay. We've been saying over and over as we're finishing up this book, the last four chapters of 2 Samuel is what is known as the epilogue, the concluding four chapters of this two-volume book, First and Second Samuel, um, the epilogue is, the, is not only the concluding uh, books, but it's, it's the way the narrative wants to end this wonderful study. So it's, it's, it's not just, you know, put together haphazardly. It was, it was done, of course, by the work of the Spirit um, for our instruction. Peter said that even though men wrote Scripture, they spoke from God as they were carried along, carried along by the Holy Spirit. Paul told young Timothy, one more second here, okay. Paul told young Timothy that all scriptures breathe out, exhaled by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. All right, so it's, it's, it's given for us in, for our instruction. James tells us don't be just hearers of the word, be doers of the word. So God in his sovereignty, in his uh, putting together the scripture, gave us these last four chapters, and they're very important. In fact, as, as I was studying this week, let me go back one, as I was studying this week, I, I, didn't really, I didn't really see this until I was really into the scriptures this week, that this last chapter really does speak about David's life in so many ways, about his faith, about his failures. It's not arbitrarily put together. It, it, it really shows us how David was clinging to, to the promise that God made him and actually clinging to God himself. It's a wonderful ending. I mean, it's, it's a perfect ending. No wonder, right? God oversaw that. Didn't ask me, of course. And this, this narrative just captures David's life. You see, King David, unlike the first king, Saul, was willing to acknowledge his failures. He was, he was willing to acknowledge his sin. We'll see that again in this chapter. As we get into this chapter, there, there, there are three things I think we could see. There's many ways you could break it up. 
Uh, but we're going to see the sovereignty and providence of God. We talk about that here a lot because it's so, such a biblical uh, principle and promise and, and actually beauty of Scripture. Uh, the sovereignty and the providence of God. Then we'll see the judgment and mercy of God. And then the sacrifice and substitution of God as we finish up and conclude this book. So that's where we're at. Now, what I want to do is I want to make sure that all of us here together, we get into providence, we get into sovereignty, I want to make sure that we have a biblical working definition of what that means, okay? So maybe you never heard it before, maybe you heard it, you're not quite sure, so I want to make sure that we're all on the same page. So we talk about the sovereignty of God or God's sovereignty, we're talking about his omnipotent power, we're talking about his exclusive right, and authority to govern all of creation, all of the universe, all things, for his own wise and holy decree or purposes. Nipotent power and exclusive right and authority. That's the sovereignty oversees and rules and reigns. When we talk about providence, we're talking about the things that actually happen. The continuing work or the continuing activity by which God does preserve, provide, and manage his creation, the working out of all the things for his wise, eternal plans and purposes, everything he intended from eternity past and eternity future. Okay? Say, well, that sounds great. Is it biblical? Yes. I won't get too many. I'll give you two verses, and that's it. Isaiah 46, I am God, there's none like me. I declare the end from the beginning and from ancient things not yet done saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. Not some, but all. Psalm 115, our God is in heaven, he does all that he pleases. If you're familiar with the Westminster Confession of Faith, when it talks about God's decree, it says this, God from all eternity did by the most holy and wise counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet, yet so as thereby neither is God the author of sin, not happening, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or the contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. End quote. There are first causes, there are second causes, okay? People make real choices. God decrees everything, but he's not the first cause of everything. Yes, Scripture even teaches in our sinful choices and our sinful actions are still in the hands of God. Even the greatest sin ever committed, which is the crucifixion of the perfect, spotless Lamb of God, Peter preached and told the people of Israel that Jesus Christ was attested by God with wonders and signs, was in your midst, and was delivered up to the cross, went to Calvary according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Okay? But yet you crucified him and killed him, he told the people in Jerusalem. He would later on to say that truly in this city we gather together Against your holy servant Jesus, this is his prayer, Acts chapter 4, whom you, Lord, anointed, Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, and all the people of Israel to do whatever your hand, Lord, and your plan had predestined to take place. If you remember in the book of Genesis, Joseph 
in Egypt. Second man in charge after he'd been beaten by his brothers, evil brothers, thrown into a pit, went to prison for a stint, and came out and was second in charge of Egypt. His brothers are in Israel. There's famine. They're going to die. They come to Israel, and they find their brother Joseph. You know what Joseph tells his brothers, his evil brothers? He says this, God sent me before you to preserve you as a remnant on the earth. Famine won't strike you. And to keep alive for you many survivors. So, he says, it was not you who sent me here to Egypt, but God. See what Joseph's doing? He's recognizing that the sinful, wicked actions of his brothers came under the great eternal decree of God. All right, but I want to be clear. God's not evil. God is holy. God is perfect. There's, there's no darkness in him at all. But yet God permits the evil actions to be performed and then he overrules it with his own wise and holy ends. That's why Joseph was able to say at the end of Genesis to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So God is sovereign and his sovereignty includes being sovereign over evil. Okay? You need to be in that place before we read this text. Okay. Chapter 24, verse 1. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my Lord the king will see it. In other words, you're getting old. You won't see it much longer. It's a shot. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out, from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan, began from Aror, and from the city that is in the middle of the valley toward Gad and on to Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and to Kedish in the land of the Hittites. They came to Dan, and from Dan they went around to Sidon. They came to the fortress of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hittites and the Canaanites, and they went out to the Negev of Judah at Beersheba. So, verse 8, when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of the nine months, and 20 days, and Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel, there was 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 5,000. Remember, north and south, 5,000 men. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. Now, as we shall see in our next heading, what David did and to what David told Joab to do was sinful and actually brings judgment upon his people. And here's the first difficulty with this passage, right? God incites David to do something that turns out to be judgment and sin against him and the people. Yet James tells us very clear, let no one say that he is tempted on being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, for he himself tempts no one. So God tests Satan, tempts. Sometimes the motive is the issue, right? God wants us to grow in our faith. Satan wants us to fail in our faith. Here's another problem. 
We're going to talk about some difficulties here. We have to. Second, in 1 Chronicles 21, you don't have to turn that, trust me, it's the same account. And in that account, in 1 Chronicles 21, it says that Satan incited David to count Israel. If that's not enough, in verse 10, it says what? David says, I have sinned and done what was great. Uh, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Sounds like the decision that was made to count the people which he sinned was David's decision. Right? Was it God inside him? Was it the trickster Satan inside him? Was it, was it David the one who, who finally uh, you know, made that decision? The answer, the easy answer is Yes. Right? That's the easy answer. They were all involved. Let, let's look first at verse 1 real, for a moment and recognize that God is angry. God is angry with Israel. Okay, that's, that's the context. May not fit into your theological box. Deal with it. That's what it says. God's angry. We've talked about this before. God's anger, God's wrath are just as real as God's love. They're connected, right? We talked about that. Anger is a natural response to threats of someone or something that you love. Aggression sometimes is appropriate when you want to protect those that you love. Try to grab a mother's child away from her. She'll be angry, right? It's a motivator sometimes. God is said to be a jealous God who hates sin. He's not jealous in a kind of stalking Facebook Stalking kind of jealousy because he loves his creation like an artist who loves his pictures. And, he, and, and God is angry when we are, uh, are, are, are and rightly angry when we rebel against him. When there's abuse, when creation is marred and defaced and people are devalued and abused. God's angry. We're thankful that he is. He loves his creation. Now we're not told why God is angry. It just says the anger of the Lord was kindled. We don't know why. It says in verse 1, again, again, anger of the Lord was kindled. Some, some commentators think, well, if you go back to chapter 21, the first chapter of the, of the prologue, there was famine in the land. It was because of sin. And that this one picks up from chapter 21. After there was famine uh, and there was sin and God was angry in chapter 21, now chapter 24, again, God is kindled. But we still don't know exactly what the reason is. Whatever the reason is, God steps in and God uses David as his unknowing agent of the Lord's anger against Israel. That's the context. And again, there's no contradiction. The writer in 1 Chronicles didn't go, mm, I, I'm confused. There's God and there's Satan. They seem like the same person. They're not. So when 1 Chronicles was written, he understood what Samuel said. There's no contradiction. They weren't, they weren't, they weren't like, oh, I didn't know that. David obviously takes responsibility. And obviously David understood that what he was doing was not the command of the Lord. He said he incited him. It wasn't like he verbally heard it. But what he was doing was something he chose to do. And rightfully so, he takes responsibility for it. Again, James says that God doesn't tempt us. And then he says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. What's going on? Family, you've got to have a biblical category in our brain. And I talk about this. It says that the Lord is 
able to use both good and evil human acts for his purposes without diminishing human responsibility for their actions and without, in any way, incriminating God in any evil. The Lord has a purpose in all that he does without compromising David's responsibility. He's the Lord of the universe. He's exercising dominion over all powers, all authorities, all the time over heaven and earth, just like Job. Job was under a God-permitted action against him by the devil, yet Job could say in chapter 1, the Lord gave and the Lord take away. We know what happened. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Here's the deal. Although Satan is involved, man is responsible, and God is ultimately sovereign over all things. He chooses to permit, and I use that word not only carefully but purposely, he chooses to permit us to fall prey to temptations of Satan and our own evil desires. He, 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 he allows us to be brought to that place but yet he remains sovereign in the process. He doesn't delight in it, but he also is sovereign over it. And the authors of Chronicles, when he talks about Satan, they're looking at, at a ground level, and yet the author of Samuel is looking from eternity. Satan was the one prodding David, yet the author of Samuel says God's sovereign. Does that mean that he approves or he's, he's evil anyway? Absolutely not. The sinful acts we commit are not God's fault, but are an exercise of the legitimate moral freedom that God has granted human beings. We're responsible for it, but yet God is sovereign. And you say, well, I don't understand. Okay, me either. It's called a mystery. It's a mystery. It's a mystery. God takes our decisions, even the most wicked intentions and demonic forces, uses the decision for his perfect plan. How does that happen? I don't know. But David, David is at that place. He's going to be trusting in what God has for him. You know, what's interesting, and we were talking about this in our community group this week. Hebrews, when, when you have writers of Hebrews, you have Old Testament people in that day think differently than we do, right? They think differently than we do. There's a Hebrew scholar by the name of Walter Kaiser. He's a Hebrew scholar from Gordon Conwell. He says this. It's very interesting. According to Hebrew thinking, that whatever, that whatever God permits, he commits. By allowing this census taking, God is viewed as having brought about the act. The Hebrews the Hebrew way of thinking, were not very concerned with determining secondary causes and properly attributing them to the exact cause. Under the divine providence, everything ultimately was attributed to God. Why not say he did it in the first place, end quote. They, they see God sovereign. Satan served the Lord's purposes. The Lord used Satan as his agent in inciting David to be the agent of his anger toward Israel. God used the mighty armies of Babylon and the Assyrian army to bring discipline upon his children. And here we see God's anger is kindled. Joab comes to David and actually speaks a word of caution, uh, which is kind of surprising. We don't know exactly what's going on in David's mind or his heart, why he wants to number the people. Joab says, you know, this is not a good idea. Um, 
It seems to me, and I think some commentaries say this, it seems to me that David was, reason, was, was numbering the people to satisfy his own curiosity or possibly pride. I want to see how many men are in my army. Maybe he was looking to, to take on more land. But I think at this point, he's not depending upon God. You know, the Torah actually permits the king to take census. He, gives a, he tells you how to do it. So it's not like taking the census was wrong. I think the motive behind what David was doing was the problem. Look with me at verse, um, let me see. When Joab said to the king, look at verse 3. Maybe some insight. I mean, Joab is a man who does whatever he wants. Remember, he kills lots of people, even though David said don't. So he killed Abner, he killed Absalom. And look at verse 3. Joab said to the king, may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of the Lord and my king still see it. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? I could be reading into it, I don't know. It seems like David is delighting in something and not really trusting in God. He wants it for himself, not directed of God. That, that's, what it, that's what it appears to me. Either way, David gets what he wants. Verse 9, Joab goes, counts the number of the people, and we have 800,000 valiant men and the men of Judah, 500,000, okay? But look what happens, the judgment and mercy of God in verse 10. David's heart struck him. So they come back. This is how many men, and all of a sudden when David hears it, his heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now, O Lord, please, Take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. This is where King David shines, right? He's taking full responsibility of his sin, and he's confessing it to the Lord. He, he obviously understood that taking this census was not given to him by the command of God, and what he did was sinful. And you could say, you know what, David... He's always on a good track. Oh, David is on a good track, and David just blows it. David's on a good track, he just blows it. David's on a good track, and he just blows it. If he, you know, he obviously, you know, keeps blowing it. If you didn't sin in the first place, we wouldn't be here again. If you feel that way, write that down. Remind yourself that truth, right? Keep it in your hands. So next time you sin, you could think, yeah, this was foolish. Keep it in your hand. You might need it even on the way home. But there's the difference between Saul and David. David had a tender conscience, and David turned to God and prayed for the removal of his iniquity and, and to remove this guilt of his sin. We've seen it before, right? Remember Nathan. Nathan the prophet came to David after he had committed uh, all kinds of sins against Bathsheba, uh, Bathsheba, adultery, and murdered her husband. This time, though, the prophet don't come in till after. Notice that. David doesn't need a prophet to tell him what he did was wrong. David's heart knew what David did was wrong. And David is learning. That's why he said, please, have, please forgive me. David is learning about the grace of God. Not only through the word of God by the prophet, but David is learning also through the experience of his sin and his repentance. He's learning. Remember, when, when David sinned against Bathsheba and he was told you have sinned by the prophet, the prophet told David, the Lord has put away your sin. The Lord forgives you of your sin. 
David learned that from the prophet. And here David, from that learned experience, now is saying, take away. I, I've done foolishly. I, I've, been a, I've been a fool in my sin. Take away my sin, Lord. He didn't need a prophet. He, he had the word of God already. And now he's speaking from experience. Verse 11. And David arose up in the morning. And, David, and when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet. Now the prophet shows up. His name is Gad. David's seer. He's the, he's the prophet with David, verse 12. This is what he says. Go and say to David, thus says the Lord, three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to who? You. Notice that. That I may do it to you, David. So Gad came to David and told him, shall three years of famine come to you in the land? Three months or, or, you, or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall be three days, pestilence, a plague in your land? Choose box number one, box number two. Price is right, number three. Take your choice. Verse 14. Uh, now consider and decide, he says now, verse 13. Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to God who sent me, to him who sent me. Verse 14, David said to Gad, notice what he says, I'm in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord for his mercy. I love it. For his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of man. What an expression of faith. In the midst of confusion, in the midst of distress, in the midst of unable to, his inability to make a choice, he puts himself and his people, let us fall into the hands, for his mercy is great. The only hope for you, the only hope for me, the only hope for anyone against whom the Lord's anger has been kindled is the mercy of the Lord. David knew that much. David was given three options. Notice the length. <laughs> three years of famine, three months of fleeing, three days of pestilence. The shorter the period, the more intense the suffering. Verse 15. David falls in the hands of God, into the mercy of what he's learned about his God. Verse 15. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men. The severity of this judgment probably speaks to the severity of the offense, although we don't know what it is. God is angry with Israel, and he's determined to divinely discipline his stiff-necked people. He does so by using David's sin, guilt, and punishment on the people, and, and David falls back still, Trusting that God will do the right thing. He knew. David knew from his walk with God that he'd rather fall into the merciful hands of God, even in the midst of judgment, than to fall into enemies' hands. That's very interesting. David would rather suffer in the hands of a holy and righteous God than in the hand of men. Because he knew, David knew, that he will not suffer the angry wrath of God 
as an unbeliever, but as a child of God. But as a child of God. Ralph Davids writes this. David is about to meet Yahweh's wrath, and yet it is conceived of Yahweh's mercy, convinced of Yahweh, excuse me. David is about to meet Yahweh's wrath and yet is convinced of Yahweh's mercies. Somehow he imagines that the hand that strikes him will nevertheless spare him. David's assumptions are astounding. His words in verse 14 breathe not only necessary resignation, but boundless consolation, comfort, end quote. My son, do not, my son, do not. Regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplined the one he loves and chastises every son he receives. Our fathers disciplined us for a short time, which seemed best to them. But God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Hebrews chapter 12. That's what David's experiencing. He's trusting in God. Family, there's no area in your life, there's no area in my life that we can't put into the hands of God. He's putting wrath and anger back into the hands of God because he knows the mercy and forgiveness and grace of God. That's amazing. Moses says God is what? Slow to anger. Abounding in steadfast, said, covenantal love, loyal love. God is patient, but his patience has run out here for a season. And God steps in and says, enough. You know, as I was studying this passage on, well, throughout the week, and it was opening day, I was missing the game, yes. I got a couple text messages. I'm like, I can't talk. I don't want to know who hit the home run. I thought something. I thought, you know, David as the king, David is king, and as the king goes, so does the kingdom, right? Could it be possible, verse one, anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he incited David against them, that David might have been part of the problem? He is king over the kingdom. Could could David be, 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 maybe, Maybe literally part of the problem. Maybe, maybe he's, just, he's using David in this way to bring discipline upon the nation. But he's also, he's implicated either, either directly because David may not be living the way he ought to be. If not, in, not directly, certainly indirectly. The biblical principle is clear. The head of the nation, the king, the head of the nation, the head of the covenant implicates those under the covenant. Adam was in covenant with God. Blessings and curses, Genesis 1 through 3, right? And God, was, God, God told Adam what to do, and Adam, what did he do? He rebelled, and as our head, he sinned, and what happened? All of us now are sinners by nature and by choice. The head of the covenant implicates all of us. Same as Jesus, the head of the new covenant, shed in his blood on Calvary's hill. His perfect life, his righteousness, we are clothed by faith. We are implicated under his covenant. Praise God for that. And here in this text, it's this beautiful paradox. God who is holy and righteous, also merciful and kind. 
and, and his wrath is immediately followed by kindness. And I read somewhere this week, wrath wrapped in mercy. And David was right. Verse 16, David was right about the mercy of God. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, is that the city of Jerusalem, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough, stay your hand. Okay, whenever you read the word relented, some of your translations may say repented. That's a bad translation of the word. Relented, it means grieving, suffering grief, okay? He doesn't repent. God doesn't repent from sin like we do. He doesn't turn from sin, right? It doesn't mean that. It's a theological term, okay? It, 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 what's called theologically is anthropomorphic. It's, it's, it's a description of God where he can relate to human beings that we can understand something of God because he's speaking to us, as Calvin would say, baby talk. Calvin says, God is hurt no less by the atrocious sins of men than if they pierced his heart with mortal anguish, end quote. So God is speaking to us. He's showing that we, he's grieved. He's grieved. It's not like he, 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 didn't, he didn't know the beginning from the end. It's not that he, he changed his mind in a sense where he saw something he didn't know. He's all-knowing. It's still part of his plans and purposes. David's faith in God for judgment was, was well-founded, and yet his mercy endured, and David is trusting in God's mercy. Take compassion. I mean, isn't that beautiful? That God is infinitely holy and infinitely loving. He's not half of half. He is completely holy and he's beautifully and completely loving. God poured out his wrath on his people, but now he takes compassion on them. Notice that. And that's, that's God's love and compassion on you and your misery too. Now look at verse 16 again. It says, the angel was standing on the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite, when he ordered it to halt, verse 17, David spoke to the Lord, saw the angels sitting there, and he says to him, this is really important, behold, I have sinned, I've done wickedly, but these sheep, those in Jerusalem, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. You hear what David is saying? I'm the shepherd, they're the sheep. Please spare the sheep and smite me. Strike me. Strike me so they can go free. Let, let your judgment fall on me so that your mercy may fall on them. Let mercy triumph over judgment by making a substitutionary sacrifice. Someone has to pay so that those in Jerusalem can live. There needs to be a substitute, a, 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 a sacrifice, but it can't be David. It can't be David. Look at verse 18, sacrifice and substitute. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, go up, go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word, as the Lord commanded, and when Aronis looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming toward him. And Aronis went out and paid homage to the king, put his face to the ground. And Aronis said, why has my lord the king come here, come to this servant? David said, to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted, that the plague may be averted from the people. 
Then Arana said to David, let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for burnt offerings, the threshing sledges, and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. See, you see, see what's happening? Blood must be shed, a sacrifice must be given so that the judgment of God, the wrath of God can be stopped, can be adverted, turned aside. That's what's going on here. Verse 23, all this, O king, Arana gives to the king. And Arana said to the king, may the Lord, your God, accept you. I hope all this works out. You sacrifice, your, the, the wrath of God is averted, and, and God accepts you. Verse 24, but the king said to Arana, no, I'll buy it from you for a price. I, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord, my God, that cost me nothing. David brought the thre- bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. Verse 25, the last verse. And David built an altar to the Lord, offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was what? Averted from Israel. Family, the book ends with the gospel according to David. The very last act of David recorded in the books of Samuel is sacrifices and offerings. Burnt offerings, most common in the Jewish temples. Most common of all Old Testament sacrifices. The main purpose was to what? Atone for man's sin by propitiating God's wrath. The peace offering were a celebration of peace with God that flowed from that sacrifice. Notice with me that in verse 16, the angel was told to stop and what? Wait. Right? Stop. Stay your hand. Hebrew, relax. The plague stopped, but the wrath behind the plague still had to be dealt with. There was still, there was still, it still needed to be propitiated. That's what's happening here. You remember in Romans, the Bible says that God put Jesus forward as a propitiation by his blood. First John, Jesus is the propitiation for all our sins, not only ours, but also for the sins of the world. And that word of propitiation is to appease, to advert God's holy wrath, satisfying God's demand for justice. So here David is looking to advert the wrath of God with a sacrifice. But there's more, family. In 1 Chronicles, again, the same kind of story, that's, the same story is being told. Orana was the place on top of Mount Moriah. Arana, the, the place of this threshing floor was the same place that Abraham went to offer up his son Isaac. Where God stopped him and told him, sacrifice, offer a ram instead in place of Isaac as his substitute. The threshing floor is also the same place that David's son Solomon will soon build a temple where Israel will come to offer up sacrifices for sins. The lambs brought into the Solomon's temple is meant to deliver Israel for a season. But as a reminder to God's people that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And the temple, day in and day out, week in and week out, sacrifices. When Isaac's spot on the altar was replaced by a lamb, it meant deliverance for Isaac for a season. Death for Isaac and for David's Jerusalem was adverted, was adverted because the sword of divine justice would be satisfied by the death of a substitute. You need to see that. And this important place, 
This important place points to the day when one will come and another sacrifice will be given who will completely satisfy God's wrath and take away sin forever. Jesus, the ultimate Lamb of God. Jesus would accomplish what no previous sacrifice, no previous king could ever accomplish. David was pointing to the ultimate shepherd who would really be smitten, who would lay down his life for his wayward sheep. David David beautifully foreshadows the work of Jesus, the ultimate son of David, who gave his life on that hill near Jerusalem for his people, so that even more tragic, so that even more tragic plagues would be stopped, sin, death, and hell. David's substitutionary sacrifice in Involved wood, as we see here, blood. Jesus sacrificed, shed his blood. He suffered for, for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. For he himself, Peter said, bore our sins in his body. Second Samuel closes, listen, with these words. The Lord responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was adverted from Israel. That family is good news. That is the gospel. Because in a short time, in a short distance from the threshing floor, a perfect and complete sacrifice would be given that sin would be atoned for and the whole world have opportunity to come to Jesus. And we've been saying all along throughout this entire study, that's why we called it the King of Kings, that every character in this book, every character in the Bible except Jesus is flawed. That's why we're looking for someone better. We should read these stories and we should be looking for someone better, someone who will come who will be a perfect king, a perfect priest, a perfect prophet. David is depicted in Scripture. We've seen this over and over as entirely human, hampered by weakness. He's in, he was indulgent towards his son on occasion to himself. His sexual sins had him in all kinds of trouble. Yes, but unlike Saul, David received rebuke. He was humbled. He, 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 he recognized that God was still God, but David's hope, our hope, is in the promise of God. What, what God told Nathan the prophet, David, I'll raise up a son, and his house, his kingdom will be forever, sure forever before me, he will establish his kingdom forever. That's why Matthew 1 opens up Jesus, the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David. So David was... We, we saw some good times. We said David for a season was Israel's great hope, but he was not the king Israel needed. Even Moses, the lawgiver, did not go into the promised land because of his sin. What we need is someone greater. We, what we need is a builder of a glorious eternal kingdom that could never be shaken. We need a shepherd who will not abuse his sheep but lay his life down for them. We need a father who will not neglect his children but pursue them to the point of death. We need a king who will not sin against his people but will die in their place. That role will never be filled by Abraham, Moses, or David. It is filled once and for all by Jesus Christ, God's son. David's life is meant to point us to Christ. In Christ, we can only have forgiveness of sin. He is our king. He is our king. There is none like him. You will, you, you will, if, if you just humbly approach God, 
approach the Lord through the substitutionary sacrifice of David's greatest son, Jesus Christ, God will forgive you of your sins. You'll be reconciled to God. No matter how great, no matter how wicked, no matter how much sin you have committed, God will forgive you. If you repent, you turn, and you receive the gift of eternal life. God will have mercy on you. Matthew Henry wrote these words. Christ is our altar, our sacrifice. In him alone we may expect to find favor with God, to escape his wrath and the sword, the flaming sword of the cherubim who kept the way of the tree of life. Jesus is the only answer. All of First and Second Samuel points to the King of Kings, what this title is for, who gave his life for you. And that's what this table's about. The king of kings who gave his life for you, he, he died an atoning death. He lived a perfect life. You could never live. He died a death. You should have died. He bore the wrath of the father against our sin. Judgment came upon him. Darkness over the hill. He gave his life. His body was broken. His blood was shed. Justice was satisfied. And love is extended. If you don't know that, I want you to hear that clearly. God loves you and wants you to know about his son, about the only atoning sacrifice that can forgive you of our sins. The band's gonna play. We're gonna respond. If everybody just stay, we're gonna respond. We're gonna confess our sins. Maybe you've never done this before. Today's the first day. If you're a follower of Jesus, the table's for you. If you're not, just wait Pray, we'll talk to you, we love you, we're glad you're here. But this table is a table for believers. And maybe today's the first day you'll make that commitment, that's fine. The bread represents his body that was broken, the cup, again, his blood that was shed. We'll spend time confessing, we'll spend time repenting, and we'll be turning from sin, and then we're gonna spend time celebrating the death of Christ on your behalf, on my behalf, as he died for our sins. As we did last week, two rows, please keep the two rows going, Okay? So let's pray. Father, all of Scripture points to Jesus. Every narrative, every hero, biblical hero anyway, points to the real, true, and only great hero, and that's you. So Father, as we sing, as we contemplate, as we confess sin, Lord, as we turn from sin, empower us to do that, And God, as we come and we celebrate the death of Jesus on our behalf, we pray you would get glory. Lord, we pray for those in this room right now that have not come to that place, but but know that their their sin is ever before them. That, Lord, that you offer them life and and satisfaction. And, Lord, that you alone can heal their broken heart. Father, we pray that you would get glory, that we would see the beauty and incalculable worth of Jesus and trust him today, worship him today as the true Savior who died and rose from the grave. Work in our hearts, we pray, for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.